I am Thun, Prince of the Lion Men. Ming is also my enemy. And I'm Flash Gordon from the Earth. You have spared my life. I will help you free the prisoners of whom you speak. I'll need plenty of help. Thanks. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. It's coming to your galaxy this summer. Rebellion and romance. Aliens from a thousand worlds. And welcome to the second pilot episode of the Wiki Genome Project, the podcast about everything Star Wars that isn't Star Wars. I'm Diamond Rob Russo, the ombudsman of Clown Town, and I just watched 21 minutes of vintage sci-fi garbage. Here with me to discuss it are Patrick Bonfrisco and I'm Eric Strathers. On this show, we explore the pop cultural DNA of the Star Wars films, such as the old adventure serials, cowboy films, comic books, and pulp fiction that shape the saga we know and love today. And for our uh, pilot, our inaugural series, we're discussing Universal Studios' 1936 adventure serial uh, Flash Gordon, which is perhaps the most important influence on the Star Wars uh, saga as we know it. And we already did episode one, so we're launching right into episode two, which as soon as I scroll to it in my notes. Tunnel of Terror. Yeah, okay. Tunnel, yeah, okay, we'll just use yours. Tunnel of Terror. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So the recap card here, the, uh, the, it's not a crawl, but it would be a crawl if it were a Star Wars movie. Flash, aided by Aura, is hiding in a rocket ship when the gyros of the lion men attack Ming's palace, where Dale and Zarkov are held prisoners. Fearing for his friends, Flash attacks the gyros and brings down their leader, Prince Thun. Finding Flash is an enemy of Ming's, Thun promises to help him, and through a secret passage, they enter the palace and learn that Dale is being married to Ming. Flash, trying to reach the wedding chapel, runs headlong into the Tunnel of Terror. I love the way this uh, this episode opens. So the last one was on a almost literal cliffhanger where Flash beats the eight men fair and square. Ming reneges on his bargain and says that he will not free Flash. Instead, he will be executed. And Princess Aura shoots one of the guards who happens to be next to the trapdoor death switch. And he dies on the switch and they fall down. And this, uh, like the uh, like Jabba's Rancor pit, goes right to a, a death dragon lair. But Ming was prepared for this uh, possibility, and there is luckily for our heroes a regret button, <laughs> which they press, which shoots out a net and catches our heroes immediately. I love that they. This has happened enough where Ming has been like, "Oh, I shouldn't have sent those people to their doom." Oh, I'm gonna have a button. I'm gonna have like a net a, a net function put in. <laughs> and the other thing is is that 
Princess Aura, as once they're caught by the net, she knows that there's a secret door right next to the net that they can get out of, which means this has happened to her before. That's what I was thinking. Um, it, uh, she's been thrown down the murder tube before. <laughs> I thought, exactly, I thought either there's this rash of guys that she's so drawn to, she ends up down in this tube, or <laughs> she, she, you know, she's just man crazy. But Or, or you know, she built it. She was, you know, the architect or the general yeah, contractor that installed this thing. Who's to say she isn't? That's right. We don't know. I mean, my personal headcanon for Princess Aura is that she's always trying to, like, usurp the throne from, from her father. And that uh, she latches on to not necessarily men that she's attracted to, but men she imagines being able to like choke the life out of her father with their bare hands because he, she, she, it's like a patriarchy at work here. So she knows that her only way to get to the top is to marry the emperor. And she can't do that. If she's Ming's daughter, she's going to be married off to like the prince of the lion people or something like that. So this is what she, you know, she dreams of doing It's kind of like how Darth Vader like dreams of like, you know, uh, he finds Luke and then he tests him and it's, Oh, Luke is actually good. My son is, is good. Like you, you could run the empire. Um, by the way, has anybody read Lee Brackett's draft of empire strikes back? I have not. No, I have not. It's out there like a literal scan, a PDF file is out there, a literal scan of the document that has somebody's notes on it. I'm not sure if it's brackets or Lucas's. I, I suspect it might, might actually be Lucas's notes, but um, it's a great thing because this is before Darth Vader was Luke's father, but that's still his plan. It's established early on. that uh, That's where you first see Vader's castle, by the way. Um, the one they eventually used the artwork for Maz's castle. And, uh, and then they, they changed it slightly for rogue one when they finally show us where Vader lives. And um, in empire like when he has this audience with the emperor's hologram it's in his dark black metal castle and he's literally like the 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 scene directions say he's feeding tidbits to garg living gargoyles from a golden bowl how metal is that that is Seriously. like <laughs> that is like a molly hatchet album cover come to life um <laughs> but he, then the emperor shows up and it's just like a giant hologram um, so that's the other thing that that is that was uh, turned into Snoke, by the way, like that's why Snoke is a giant hologram, um, but uh, like a gigantic hologram in some some concept art. You can literally just see the emperor's mouth, which would have been really creepy and Vader all but cowers in fear. And it's established that he hates the emperor because the emperor is the one man in the galaxy Vader fears. And so when he finally meets Luke and tests him. And sees that Luke is a worthy adversary. That's when he makes the offer. Not as father and son. But he says, look at me, Luke. I cannot go as a man among men. Because, you know, he's like a twisted, burned robot man. And he's, but, but you can. You are better than the Emperor. You could rule this galaxy. And, uh, and you would be a good leader. And, and so there's a weird kind of... It's, you know, anyway. That's, that's why I think that about Princess Aura. Is because I'm kind of, in, you know... I really like that. It's really good. I don't know. People dump all over Lee Brackett's draft. I don't think it's that bad. So that's the end of that. <laughs> uh, what happens next? So we've got the, why are the dragons down at the bottom of the murder tube? Like, wouldn't you just die from the fall? Like, are they just there to clean up the corpses? I don't understand. Like they're, 
maybe it was just so that if you didn't catch how how long of a drop, just to add one other layer of of peril down there at the bottom. That's what I took from it, at least, was that the net protected them from the dragons, not not just, just the fall. But I mean, if they hit the ground, they would have just been dead, right? They would have, if they didn't die, they would have their legs broken. And they... Well, I would say in real life, yeah, but in movies, a lot of times, <laughs> you know, people fall ridiculous distances and then just get up. So could be that the precedent was set that people survive longer drops in movies and they wanted to put something not, down you, there. You can't even credit the force with their survival. That's true. <laughs> It's like when Luke falls from the uh, ad ad, it's like, oh, why weren't his legs broken? Oh, because the force. Okay, great. Yay. Uh, And then later on, like the force basically just allows like Samuel L. Jackson to fly. But yeah, so the dragons down there, uh, they don't really do anything. They escape um, into a cave and then suddenly the camera starts getting tilted like like this 1960s Batman series. Did you guys notice that? Like, yes, to kind of like show like how messed up and weird the, the twisty cave yeah right were. it's right. like oh, the camera's tilted i love that yeah, i don't I, know why I, I grew up on those old batman shows so anytime someone does that in in anything i mean granted this was done before so it's not like it was an homage but it's still right. i just kind of go nuts it just just makes Did, me so happy to see now of course you saw those batman shows in syndication right you're yes. you're about approximately my age so you would not have seen them in the 60s for no sure. no i did not but do you take them as a kid 100 percent seriously not 100 percent. and i, I okay you I, I know this is a bit of a tangent but i just remember watching it at my friend david's house who lived right down the street from me we'd watch it like every day after school and one day i think the first time i remember not taking it seriously was the Batmobile like launched a parachute out of the back to slow down and then disconnected mm-hmm. the parachute. And we kind of looked at each other and thought like, he's just going to leave his parachute behind. And then they show Alfred drive up. <laughs> Alfred was like <laughs> hiding in the bushes and another car drove up and picked it up. And it was so <laughs> ridiculous that even as a kid, we were kind of like, the show's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. Bruce Wayne's so, a billionaire, but he's not just going to throw money away on right? parachutes. You <laughs> <laughs> But I remember as a kid that when my parents would laugh at it, yeah, that's what tipped me off that, man, maybe this isn't, you know, you know, 100% altogether. Because before that, I remember thinking as a kid, well, pff, being a grown up doesn't seem like it's that bad, you know, <laughs> because yeah. on Batman, they're always having a great time. And when I realized it was a, you know, a bit of a tongue in cheek joke to my parents, okay, all right, just maybe they were like super high, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just think everything's funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, my dad, see, I didn't, I took it one hundred percent seriously. I didn't realize until I was probably in my like late teens when I saw it again on like cable or something. This, oh, this is all very deliberately campy, but um. Which is kind of like the same thing with like the Flash Gordon 1980 movie, which is, I think, like a little bit too campy for its own good. But, you know, it does give us a uh, Star Wars reference. Max von Sydow as Ming the Merciless. Yes. Um, Laura Santeca himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably kind of a discredit to him to call him Laura Santeca. I mean, he he is the guy from The Seventh Seal, which is one of the great movies of, of Western movie history. Um, he's the knight in that movie. Have you guys seen The Seventh Seal? It's okay if you haven't. It's like it's not. Uh, I don't guess I have. I can't, I can't remember. I don't think I have. His actually, his probably his pinnacle role is he was the brewmaster in oh, Strange, Strange Brew, Brew. That's the Bob and Doug McKenzie him. movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, haven't, <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Wow. 
Oh, we are oh, from God. two different worlds. I think. Oh, I was raised on the old Batman TV shows and Strange Brew. <laughs> yeah. Strange Brew. I don't even know that. Strange Brew, just real quick, is um, there's kind of like the Canadian version of Saturday Night Live. It was SCTV. And they had this sketch comedy thing. And it was these two guys, Bob and Doug McKenzie, which was Rick Moranis. Right. And um, uh, uh, oh, Dave something thomas anyway yeah dave thomas yeah 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 and they were these canadians who like did this little crappy show where they sat around and drank beer and cooked up back bacon they and you know (laughs) that they ended up doing they did a comedy album and you may have heard the the 12 days of christmas their recording of it was on the first day of christmas my tree love gave to me a beer and yeah and um anyway the, you'll hear it on the radio at christmas time but they did this comedy album and then they got a movie they got a movie deal and put out <laughs> put out this just genius of a film where the whole storyline is that there's this company that they are putting this chemical in the beer so that they can basically control everyone like zombies and bob and doug mckenzie who are connoisseurs of drinking huge quantities of beer figure out the plan and end up inadvertently getting in the middle of stopping it Great, great watch, man. Okay, okay. <laughs> I feel like I got it. Well, wow. Let me just let me just tell you this: the movie itself starts with them sitting in the crowd at their movie. Yes, which yes. is a different movie. It's their comedy show, and they're it's watching like the- it. And they, yeah, they they had filmed their own movie. It was supposed to be like this post-apocalyptic <laughs> thing, and it's it was like it's kind of like what we're talking about right now. He's wearing a jock strap and he's over his clothes and, <laughs> and he's got this pistol that shoots the big ping pong balls. And it's like supposed to be in the future. And it reminds me of the end of uh, Pee Wee's big adventure, but it's like starts at the beginning, right? A little bit. Yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. Except flipped over where it's even more terrible. And the, the, the film ends up breaking and they're like trying to kill time. And one of the people in the crowd complains. They did this on their album. And then they, they, they have to escape before the crowd like goes into wow. a riot. That's the start. You gotta of the see movie, this. Man. I don't know what it's this has great. to do with star Wars, but I like it. Everybody, Sorry. we're going to check this out. out, man. That's how we got on He's it. In it. Yeah, wow. yeah. That, that, and, and honestly, when you watch the, the movie within a movie, you'll see, um, the similarities to some of these older serials. <laughs> yes. I mean, they made a much, a much worse well, version, but it, it, it really had that kind of feel. People like Rick Moranis, though, I mean, they were of the same generation as George Lucas. So they grew up with this crap on TV. So to them, even though it was from the 30s, they remember it from their childhood, just like I remember um, Star Trek, the old 60s Batman show and Super Friends and other stuff from the 70s and 60s as if it were my own, because that was being rerun when I was a kid. Right. Um, So it's interesting how like TV uh, programmers need to fill time has changed. I mean, if it weren't for the fact that there were large stretches of, of broadcast television airtime with nothing to put in them, there would be no star Wars. Um, so that's something to think about. Like just boredom created star Wars in a way. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So the okay, Batman angles in the cave, um, this also has one of my favorite aura moments, um, where flash is running for his life and aura gently caresses his biceps because uh, she's going to be fine. You know, like Ming soldiers aren't going to shoot her. They're going to shoot Flash. But she's just like so caught up in the moment. Like Flash is like thinking about how he's going to survive. And she's like just feeling his muscles. Just like they're so big. I just want to be wrapped up in them. 
it's, yeah, and she starts she starts to ask him, "Do you like this other woman?" Like, well, that's I her just topic. met her like literally like you know half an hour ago. But yeah, I think we're gonna get married. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, there's no no courtship period between Dale and Flash. It's just like it's established that of course they're in love with each other because they're in a crisis together. It's like Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock in the yeah. movie Speed. Like it just just happens, and then they're on a boat. So the uh, the they and then we we cut to I think Zarkov's Frankenstein lab, which as I mentioned last episode is literally the machinery and stuff from the movies Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, which makes and, a lot of sense now because when I when I was watching it, I thought. All those pieces looked familiar, but I didn't have time to sit there and figure it out. I just thought this. Oh yeah, like the right. whirly gig, yeah. where there's just like the sparklers that spin around a disc for no reason. That is, yeah, Frankenstein, and that stuff was later reused by Mel Brooks in Young Frankenstein. That's where I recognize it from, then, because there's another the one that stuff. I watched a hundred times. <laughs> if you guys haven't seen Franken, this is like kind of Star Wars related in a way because it's like old sci-fi. But if you haven't seen Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein with Boris Karloff. Um, you really need to see it. If you like, if you just like pop culture and stuff, like these are some of the best early movies. These are the best early sci-fi movies I think I've ever seen. And, um, Bride of Frankenstein, I showed it to my kid when he was like four and a half years old or something like that. And he got into it right away. Um, because if you're a parent of a uh, four or five year old boy, you know how much they love the Incredible Hulk, right? Because the Hulk is basically just a giant empowered toddler, mm-hmm. right? He's he's just like a super <laughs> right. powerful toddler, and like he doesn't understand, like why does everybody hate me? I, like why do I break everything I touch? And it's like that's what toddlers feel like all the time. And so the the Hulk is their hero, and Frankenstein is even more like that. He's literally like a this is like the day he was born. He's got like an adult super powerful body, but he can't control himself and everybody hates him because he does things by accident and kids get into it. He, have you, you guys have, haven't seen bride of Frankenstein or anything, huh? No, I guess. Okay. I've seen those. It's just been a long time and I've definitely seen young Frankenstein, um, more often and more recently. Well, it is really good. Yeah. I mean, young Frankenstein is awesome, but, um, but yeah, like he, like, he uh, kid, kids can grasp those lessons right away. And those are another thing that, although I don't know, I don't know of any connections with George Lucas or, or other people who worked on star Wars expressly that those are the things that I do know for a fact were, were replayed on early TV stations ad nauseum. And that's how, uh, that's why a lot of kids like who grew up in the TV generation, like the howdy doody kind of 50 kids, fifties kids all know those universal studios monsters very well that's why they're so popular to this day because they grew up seeing those things rerun endlessly along with stuff like flash gordon and so that's and and they've really oddly enough lasted a lot longer than flash gordon has um you still see that stuff um they're still making they're trying to make you know new they're trying to reboot like the franchise or something like that with these awful movies like dracula untold or something like that don't see that it's terrible Uh, the uh so zarkov's frankenstein lab okay zarkov oh what i love about this is when you catch up with zarkov so he's been kind of imprisoned but ming tells him like instead of going to prison you're going to do science stuff for me and like give him everything he needs except for his freedom you know is a great line right and 
And uh, the next time you see Zarkov is he's in the Frankenstein lab and he's got a completely different change of clothes, which is kind of like a like a romper or something. Yeah. It's like a unitard. So it's like a like a speedo type like Superman underwear thing. But but his legs are just completely bare. And then he's got a puffy shirt with like a weird star crest on it. It right. is awesome. So he what I like about Zarkov in the scene is that he immediately Mings is like, how do you find our scientific facilities? And he's like, they're excellent. Your majesty. He's like immediately calling him by honorifics. Mings right. Your majesty. Right. Like, I don't know where Zarkov is supposed to be from, perhaps Russia. But this is like well past like czarist Russia. This is like already the Soviet Union. So like wherever he's from, like he doesn't have royalty there. But it's funny how quickly he falls in line into playing the part, at least. Yeah, he was just looking for somebody to boss him around. It's funny, right? Yeah, he really does. One other thing I wanted to mention is you get introduced to the high priest of whatever religion Ming is, and he looks just like those creepy, like, velvet-clad perverts in Return of the Jedi that follow the Emperor yes. around. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, what are those guys' names? Oh, um, I don't remember. They've got great names, really great names. Uh, I want to say... The, the, the old figures from, like, 80... 80- Mid eighties, it, it just I think it said Imperial Dignitary. If, if we're yeah, well, people. yeah, I, I right. know they have names and I can't remember what they are. They had some. Oh, 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 wait, wait. Oh, yeah. uh, Sate Pestage, I think, is one of them. That sounds right. I don't know which one, but he's one of those guys where you just picture them like like the kinds of like they kind of like look like uh, I was imagining them talking like hedonism bot in Futurama. Yes. Like, no, I he's like wonder like these the kind of guys that the emperor hangs around with you picture like this is like his secretary of education or something is like this guy (laughs) like after he dissolved the imperial senate he's just like i gotta like fill these appointments fast like well that guy you 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 go over there you could be the minister of agriculture yes that's my brother-in-law bill yeah, like he, yeah, he has no relatives, does he? Like they, I love, I just love that they're just there in the background, looking like perverse and evil, but not saying or doing anything. Um, but this guy, he does talk, and uh, he is exactly what you'd imagine those guys to be. And then um, Zarkov uh, in that scene is marveling at the radioactive power of the planet Mongo, which he says would be enough to conquer the universe itself, which. Um, that's pretty grandiose, you know. It's uh, it's a lot to conquer. Radioactive power. I mean, radiation is a byproduct of power, so I don't really understand. Uh, anyway, and then Aura uh, back to Aura and Flash. Aura tricks Flash by locking him into one of the penis rockets, and after she gets him in there, she kicks the little step ladder away as if that's going to stop him for a second. It's like <laughs> like a foot and a half up to the rocket, and she's right. Like, Kicks it away like like he's gonna open the door and be like, oh my god, I can't get down. <laughs> well, it's it's like, she, she she does a thing right there too. It's a little aside where she says, "You'll never see Dale Arden again." First and last name. Yes. You know. <laughs> she remembers which, her last name. That's amazing. Yeah, you, yeah. How did she know? But that's something that I was very very aware of in Rogue One. You know, was that every single person. Is was first and last name. I'm sure Emway. These mobs used to be the most devout. You, you know, every yeah, character uh, was first and last. Yeah, yeah. Everybody gets it at least once. Because 
it's interesting in the original Star Wars, like Bodhi, Rook, Guru, Guru, <laughs> and Owen. You don't find out their last name. Yeah. Right. So we found out their last name was Lars later. Well, not me because I was like, you know, not born yet. But, um, but you know, like people would find that out, and it's like because I bet everybody when they saw it just assumed that their last name was Skywalker. Yeah. It's it gets it gets really weird, but th- those were things that were not put out there in the original Star Wars at all. But then I think ever since then they made sure everybody said their full name if they were important. I, I actually didn't notice that in Rogue One. That didn't stand out to me. I'm, I'm interested. You guys both noticed that. I did not. Every single character, yeah. man. Every one of them. They all, did they do it all the time, or is it just like when they're introduced? Um, no, just when they're introduced. But they make a really strong point of the first and last. Captain Cassian Andor, blah, blah, blah. Or isn't that your real name, Jen Erso? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm Bodhi Rook. I'm a pilot. Saul Guerrero, you don't look like how I thought you would. Saul Guerrero. That's such a weird... That could be its own show. It's just dissecting like what movie Rogue One was before they like changed it. Because it's clearly like two different movies that were... Stitched together, I think, very well. But in fact, I was impressed by how well they did it. But that's an example of a movie that was completely changed um, halfway through. And like the characters are different. Like Jin is a totally different character. You you read the novelization and you see what she was supposed to be, which is kind of like an almost feral, like uh, untamable, like waif monster type thing. Like she was supposed to like that's why she attacks people when they rescue her. Right. It's because she's just like in the book, it establishes she trusts absolutely no one. And and she like she is just she will just like kill anybody in her way and, and to get free because that's all she understands is she wants to be free. And and then you don't see that really in the movie at all. And and she's kind of a different, more sympathetic character, I think. I'm glad they made that change, by the way. So, yeah, then we go. So the, it keeps cutting back between Flash, who also changes clothes, because when he's in the penis rocket, he finds like a closet with like a change of clothes in it for some reason. Yeah. Um, well, it, and that's interesting because I actually made a note about that. So now he's got the showing a lot of leg, you know, mm-hmm. I wear short shorts thing. Who were those clothes for? Obviously, the, they were Zarkov. Was that the that was the rocket they came there on, right? My, that was Zarkov's rocket, yeah. correct? No, 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 that wasn't. That was one of the guards. That's why the uh, lion men and their gyro saucers attacked him. is because he was in one of Ming's ships. Okay. So All that's right. like, but that's a good question because you'd think he'd be in like, it'd be like putting on like a stormtrooper outfit, right? Where he'd right. be in like a full suit of armor. But no, he's in a like space opera action leotard type thing. And, um... Yeah, that's a good question. I my theory is that that's actually on the planet Mongo. That's their underwear, and he just doesn't know it. <laughs> I like that theory. <laughs> so that's underneath everybody else's armor, and they've just got a change of underwear in the locker in case they get marooned somewhere. Um, the soldiers do, and then that's what he's wearing. So the whole time it's like he's running around in like long johns, but he doesn't realize that. He thinks it's a real pair of clothes. Same with Zarkov, by the way. Like everybody's kind of snickering at him behind his back. He's like, "Oh my god, when's he gonna put on some pants?" You know. Yeah. So flashes in the it, it, it flashes in the uh, the ship, and he's just kind of looking around. He's locked in. But the keys are apparently still in the ignition because when the lion men show up, he can fly up and attack them. Um, why he does this, I don't know. 
but he does. He goes up and fights the, what are they called? The gyro ships of the lion men, although we don't know they're lion men yet. And Ming is watching this happen on his spatiograph, Mm -hmm. which is like the Star Wars hologram. Like it has exactly the range and ability in like, you know, visual ability as the plot requires. Like if you need to talk to the emperor, it's just powerful enough to talk to the emperor. If you need to beam up the Death Star plans, it's just not powerful enough to make that a challenge. You know, it's it's not important. It's just like it's there. And then when when you need cameras to be everywhere, like to record Anakin killing all the kids in the Mm -hmm. school, then suddenly there are cameras and they record everything. Now, why anybody doubts that the Jedi are like magic space cop ninjas you know, 10 years later, I don't know because they've got footage of it all over the place, but whatever, you know, it's every, everything works just the way the plot requires. And that's in, in flash, it's the same way. It's like the spatiograph does whatever you need it to do. Like you can watch anything from any angle. Uh, let's see what happens. So they, and then flash and a, a gyro ship crash into each other and they, the models go straight down right whenever one of these ships gets hurt they don't like drift down with momentum of the direction they were going like a real plane or something they just fall straight down <laughs> a line right to the ground um probably because that's the only way you could get the models to do it you can't like throw the models at each other and like until they go in the right trajectory you just gotta drop them and um it looks like nobody could survive that wreck but of course they do uh, and, um, just like in star Wars movies, like you can crash, a, a, a spaceship going at what must be essentially escape velocity speed into a swamp and get out and be just fine with no broken bones or anything. Cause why would you want to watch a movie where he got killed? <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. you want to have the crash, but you don't want to have the consequences of a crash. And so right. then. Uh, it, which is, which I love, by the way, like a lot of people think when I say stuff like that, I'm criticizing. I'm not, I love it. Uh, but I do think it's, it's fun if you point out the silliness of it. So then Thun Prince Thun of the lion men gets out of his ship and he and flash fight. Um, Thun has a sword, which is another weird thing. Cause there are ray guns in this world, but they, most people prefer to use swords and there's a goofy spin move. I made a particular note of this because that's what you see Alec Guinness do in the original Star Wars. For no reason, he turns around really slowly, uh, just basically showing his back to his enemy, which is something you would never do in a sword fight. But he does that because if you just watch two people clicking sticks together, it's boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, Flash does that. And then when he bests his opponent, he shows him mercy. And this is another thing you see in just about every sci-fi space opera type thing ever, where the um, Earth person... Uh, shows his uh, opponent mercy. You see Captain Kirk do it in that famous episode of Star Trek where they he fights the giant lizard man who looks like um, Bosk in uh, Empire right, Strikes yeah. Back. Right. It's like, I won't kill him. You hear me? I won't do it. You know, and, uh, but yeah, it, you know, it's like a cloud, like teaching, like an interesting way of sci-fi is about, in a way, reminding man of its own humanity it's like juxtaposing all this crazy scientific space stuff with like the raw materials of the human soul and you always show how human beings at their core are really good people and and all that and and then they he immediately you know thun finds out you're an enemy ming then i will fight with you and then he goes back to dale instant best friend yeah i love uh i know this is getting ahead but in i think it's the next episode or the fourth one 
he's asked, you know, if he's going to go save Flash, and he's like, "I'll do anything for my friend." <laughs> just like you just right. met the just guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> Dale and Aura fall in love with Flash immediately. Flynn has his man crush on Flash yeah. almost instantaneously. Um, he's supposed to be, by the way, as a lion man in the comic strip, he is uh, covered in brown or like ruddy brown fur and has a tail. They just kind of give him a big like like Duck Dynasty style beard in yeah. this one. And th- they're kind of be done with it. But um, I think it still works. Like it's just like a really crazy kick ass like ZZ Top style beard. Right. <laughs> yeah. ZZ Top, go. Hey there, fair listeners. This is uh, Diamond Rob here. Uh, just chiming in to remind you that uh, if you want me to answer your questions on the air, as it were, uh, you can leave a, a brief question for me in a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play. Uh, that helps uh, get the show uh, some exposure. It helps... Uh, I think it helps improve uh, our standing in like the various podcast rankings, but it's also a way of just, you know, communicating to the uh, broader audience that this show is pretty good and worth their time. And uh, yeah, if you leave uh, any question in a five-star review, as long as it'll fit in a five-star review, we'll be good enough. Um, If you put a question in a four or less star review, I will ignore it completely. In fact, I may even single you out for ridicule, but not in a fun way because I don't want you to do it. Um, but since I don't have any questions yet, because iTunes hasn't uh, uh, put our feed up yet, uh, I figured I'd, I'd uh, take uh, answer some of these questions that are going around on uh, on the Twitter. So I, these are a lot of a lot of questions that uh, you typically get asked. Um, so since I don't want to be asked any of these questions later, I'll just go ahead and answer them now. So question number one: My all-time favorite Star Wars character. Uh, you know what? I got to go with the. Uh, I got to go with, uh, I'm going to say Ben Kenobi. And I, I like Ben Kenobi because I, li- I like how, well, number one, I like uh, Alec Guinness. So what I like about Ben Kenobi is that he's a, he's, he's a guy who, and I'm talking exclusively about like Ben Kenobi that we see in the original trilogy, the, the guy that Luke calls Ben. That's, that's the guy. I feel like the Ewan McGregor version of the character is really, really different. I, I like um, uh, Ewan's performance. I feel like he did uh, a lot of uh of the heavy lifting with that character that that needed to be done but i don't feel like that character has the dignity the the kind of gravitas that uh that alec guinness uh alec guinness's uh take on the character had and that's not because that's not that's not to any fault of of uh ewan mcgregor in fact i really do the one thing i like about the idea of an obi-wan kenobi solo movie is that it gives ewan mcgregor a chance to to play the character the way uh the way I think he expected the character to be kind of with a little bit of dignity with a little bit of, uh, you know, to be honest with like, you know, dialogue and story written by a person who is a professional writer. I would say those, the, that would make a big difference because he's a great actor and he could do, he really could and, and did do great things with the character, I think. So, um, but once you get to the Alec Guinness character, right? The way Alec Guinness plays that character, he has like a, um, a kind of, he really does embody this idea of like there was a uh, a different time, a different day and age that existed before what we see now. And he, he he speaks about the past as one who lived through it. And the way he speaks about Luke's father and about Darth Vader, it's all very very simple uh, language. But the way he the way he delivers it, I feel like that is a big part of why of why Star Wars really caught on, of why it it captured the popular imagination. And there's something about like uh, from a from a 
a more, you know, a more elegant weapon for a more civilized age. You know, the way he says that, right? Like, I just love, he, he, but he's also humble in a way, right? Like, he, he has no problem, like, just going into, like, dirty ass bars and, like, picking fights and stuff. And he, but he's above it, too. Like, he, he knows he's above it. And the way he sa- delivers his lines, too, like, only a master of evil, doth. The way he delivers that line, right? That's a crappy line, if you think about it. That's not a great line. But if you deliver it with conviction, if you deliver it with, uh, with, if you, if you just let the material breathe on its own, but are allowed a chance to do it a couple, you know, dozen times to get it right, that's what you get. You get like a really pulpy, but, but good delivery. And in the way he says it too, it just implies so much history between those two characters that, um, I really, I really, really like it. And that's, that's a big thing that I like about, uh, Star Wars in general. It's probably a lot of it has to do with, with old Ben Kenobi, crazy old Ben. So then it cuts to Dale, who um, is not going along with their attempts to put her in native clothes, which is like the Princess Leia thing. And uh, and uh, Ming talks to his royal pervert minister guy about like, what should we do? Like, you know, he says, we have to find out whether the great god Teo approves of this marriage. And like, what if what if the Earth woman doesn't go along with it? Well, we've got a dehumanizer ray, which apparently makes you like pliant and uh, agreeable to do. You just it's like you get hit with this ray and then you're just down for whatever, I guess, is how it goes. It's interesting because uh, then the next thing that happens is they show Dale getting blasted with the dehumanizer ray. But she's just sitting perfectly still (laughs) where she's like, I won't put on your clothes, but I will just sit here while you shoot me with a laser. (laughs) And uh, then they they switch to a really like I don't know how else to put this like a blatantly erotic scene of uh, like a bunch of scantily clad women like in the throes of ecstasy worshiping this giant statue that's supposed to be Teo. I found out that that is actually not even that was filmed from something uh, six years earlier that is taken from another universal sci-fi movie feature called just imagine which came out in 1930 and this is interesting because you see that scene at the beginning of the the opening credits of every flash gordon episode this show the women like uh worshiping this giant statue which is pretty cool because the statue like literally moves and stuff when they're on it just imagine is get this the 1930 movie it's about the distant creepy future of the world of 1980 and uh <laughs> <laughs> and in the movie, it shows how everybody's name has been changed from a name into a letter number combination, like THX type thing. And then um, there's a law that al- that governs marriage. And it, it, it allows, like, if there are two suitors to the same uh, woman, then they go before a court and the judge decides who is, like, the best mate for the woman. And then, like, the story's about, like, the heroes, like, rebelling against their decision. And they end up going to Mars and Mars is populated by like Amazon women, um, as you know these movies tend to do. And uh, they uh, then they are imprisoned. And while they're imprisoned, they watch a ceremony of the evil Martians because they establish in the movie. I actually watched this movie by the way, and it is hot garbage. It is a pile of <laughs> trash, but it is interesting because it's really old sci-fi in a way. But it's on YouTube. If you really really want to watch it, I suggest you don't. But you could. And, um, 
they the they establish when they land on Mars that every Martian on the planet has an evil twin somewhere, which is kind of amazing. And then the evil twins just show up on mass and take over. And then they have this like 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 uh, orgy type thing where they're all worshiping the statue. And this is pre Hayes Code. If you, are you guys familiar with the Hayes Code in in Hollywood history? No. So before, like early, like before, I'd say, I think it's 1933 or 1934, basically right before this serial was filmed, there was a uproar um, as basically, I think it was like a, like a, a Roman Catholic society or something that did a letter campaign or something complaining about the immorality of the movies and how they were with, uh, with sound that they weren't just showing things. They were also having people talk and you were having actresses and stuff like Mae West. They're always upset with the actresses, by the way, if you want to see the double standard here, like men could be absolute horn dogs, whatever. And so Hollywood, just like the video game industry would do decades later in the nineties, rather than submit to government censorship, volunteer to censor themselves. They didn't have a rating system exactly, but they would have a, like a morals board that would review every movie and uh, like a censorship board. And they would say, you can't do this. You can't do that. And so when you see the scene in Flash Gordon, which is, I believe, post Hayes Code, although there were complaints about the outfits that the women wear in it. Um, but they just, you know, they had to change them a little bit, but they they basically got away with it. But when you see the scenes of them worshiping Teo, uh, you don't ever get close-ups because in the original, in the, in the movie Just Imagine, they have a bunch of close-ups. And it's like a big Busby Berkeley-style dance number. And they're wearing basically like um, full-body, like, pantyhose type things with like weird kind of sequined leaves strategically covering parts of their body. It is really, really provocative. And uh, this is the kind of thing you'd see in a lot of early thirties movies, stuff like this, and they couldn't do it in the second half of the decade. Um, it's very interesting as, as, as uh, ribald as the outfits in flash Gordon are, they were nothing compared to some of the stuff in the early 30s. That's what the Hayes code is. So you, you kids just learn. Huh. Something. Yeah, good to know. That's cool. Thanks, man. So when you hear somebody, you might hear somebody uh, when you, hopefully this podcast inspired you to take a deep dive into movie history, which is, uh, I know for a fact, is what George Lucas would want you to do. George, if you're listening, I'm, I'm, I'm in your corner, buddy. I think we all the, are. We, when you hear somebody talk about pre-code, that's what they're talking about. You see Teo again, there's another, when they're consulting the Teo Oracle, they're in Amazingly enough, a completely different room, completely different set. All the uh, fawning uh, uh, Vestal Virgins or whatever they are gone and uh, because that was from another movie. And there's like another Egyptian-style uh, idol of Teo, and that is taken from as a prop from Boris Karloff's The Mummy, which was his uh, big hit after Frankenstein, um, it, which is not as good as Frankenstein. But they, they take one of those props – and I think it cuts back to what's it cut? What's the next? What's what are what is Flash actually doing at this point? Because they consult Teo, he approves of the marriage, and so they're all set up to do that. And then I think it's Prince Thun and Flash, and Prince Thun says something like, "I know a secret entrance into Ming's palace," and it turns out it's just the secret entrance, like a giant ass door. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like here it is, the secret entrance, it's like a gigantic door. And they do something that is very Star Wars, which is they uh, basically force a guard into doing everything they ask. 
uh, by threatening their lives, which is something that happens even in Force Awakens. So very recently, where print, uh, where, where um, uh, Captain Phasma, right, is like supposedly like the Ur stormtrooper. She is like the ultimate. She's everything a stormtrooper is supposed to be. But when they threaten her life, she immediately like gives them everything they want. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I. I there's a lot of stuff about Star Wars movies that don't really make sense the third time you watch them, but that's one thing that didn't make sense the first time I watched them. Like, why would she just go along with this? Wouldn't she be the kind of person who just says, like, no, I'd rather die? Right. Uh, that's what that bothered me the very first time. You know, I, hope, I thought they were they were completely sold. They're all in. And she'd be like, nope, you're going to have to kill me. Yeah. I, I mean, I love the scene right up until she agrees to do it because I like the way Finn reacts to her. Like, I'm in charge now. Like, I know people hate that, but I love everything oh, about I like him. that he's yeah. a completely new kind of star Wars character. I love that. He's kind of a goofball. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, but yeah, y- you'd think that she'd be just like, no, I'd rather die, but Ryan Johnson could still save us cause she comes back. So, you know, she survives. What if she's no longer in the first order because they ejected her or she knows that they they'll know that her access codes were the ones that shut down the shield. And so she's like been exiled and she seeks revenge on the heroes for ruining her life and career. And she's like the new Boba Fett. You know, yeah. I, not, I've not, been not, thinking they've got to set her up as, as sort of a, a foil for Finn at some point that she's looking for vengeance because, and, and based on what you just said, I was thinking the same thing. How can she still be in the first order when she took the shield down and the entire planet was destroyed? Um, doesn't really, <laughs> It doesn't I really mean, work. I mean, we've seen Kylo Ren take out his temper just on a on a computer screen. <laughs> then again, like Kylo Ren might be the only competent person in the First Order, for all we know. Like it's it is kind of like the Empire, in which like like all the all the higher ups like they're obsessed with their stupid doomsday weapons, and they don't really like think things out very well. So I mean, it's I don't know. I don't think they're actually going to do it. But if they did, you know, I'm just saying it's not too late. Reshoots. And uh, so they go in the secret giant ass door. Uh, They meet up with Zarkov, who informs them that, hey, guess what? Earth's going to be fine because he heard from Ming. Like, don't worry. I am in total control of the planet. No harm will come to Earth because I don't want to die. You know, that kind of thing. And uh, which is great because it's like the main thrust of the first episode. That peril is completely avoided without any real explanation. And... um, yeah, then they, uh, I think they subdue another guard and find their way into another tunnel. And then there's the next cliffhanger, which is basically the Rancor, the giant claw beast who walks around. He's about the size of the Rancor, uh, although he's not stop motion. He's just a dude in a suit. Uh, I believe, the, according to the Flash Gordon wiki, which is a real thing, believe it or not, the monster is called the Gokko. G-O-C-K-O. So... You know, even before Star Wars, names of these things were stupid. So <laughs> it's not just Star Wars that does stupid names. They're all stupid names. Um, oh, uh, speaking yeah. of, of Star Wars, there's a scene where in this episode of Flash Gordon that we're talking about where, uh, let's see, Flash is looking at the video monitor that's showing the all the people writhing around the Oracle. Mm-hmm. There's a music cue that's... Quite a bit like Leia's theme. It's just like sequence of about six or eight notes. And I like, whoa, that really stuck out to me. I'll try to find that. I didn't notice that. But as a musician, you probably would notice things that I wouldn't. 
It is the oracle deciding the marriage. Where will this marriage One interesting thing about the music in this in this serial and others is that they were usually just stolen outright, not stolen, but taken outright from other movies. In Flash Gordon's case, a lot of the music cues came from Bride of Frankenstein. Um, Bride of Frankenstein is also like the, I believe the first universal movie of its, of this talkie era that had a real proper soundtrack. So for star Wars purposes, that's a big deal because, um, it is, you can draw in a way you can draw a direct line from John Williams to whoever it was that scored Bride of Frankenstein. Cause that's, that is the really good early movie soundtrack whereas silent films could have had great soundtracks but in a lot of cases we don't know because these musical sheets the scores were lost forever oh it's kind of sad george lucas uh once upon a time was very serious about this did not like how much film history is being lost forever uh nowadays he's more famous for denying the library of congress the original print of star mm-hmm. wars but you know whatever uh it's uh <laughs> <laughs> you know, life comes at you fast. You know, that's all I'm saying. Um, but we'll see what happens with that. Uh, it could change in the near future. Who knows? People are probably going to like him. I think people like Lucas a lot more as the years go by because they realize, like, it's nothing but good news about Lucas now. It's like, hey, I'm giving money away to this school or I'm giving my money away to this thing or I'm going to build this cool museum that everybody can go to. It's like, how can you get mad at that? Like mm-hmm. the guy's got, he's one of the few super rich people who's just like, yeah, I've got enough money, whatever. I'll give it away. Like, how can you get mad at that? I don't know. Like whatever else you want to say about the guy, like the guy is not stingy with his money in retirement. I like that about him. Yeah. Same here. And I'm going to insist that you do the George Lucas imitation every episode. <laughs> yeah. Cause oh, that was really good. Yeah. I absolutely that love was, it. It was really good. I, I think it was, was it good as in like accurate or good as in like, that is like a cartoon character version of, Sound, I really like sounded that. accurate to me. I love it. I like his, I like his, uh, every, everything about the way he talks. Um, I can I kind of like, can't help but imagine him like courting, like his, uh, his, like, you know, either of his, his spouses in that voice, like just like talking, like, you know, romantic thoughts to them and stuff in that voice. Like he, it, 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 it's not like it, funny, but just like, you got to imagine like there's, some once upon a time, he was just some like lovable dork. I, I just, I like that. I, I see so much of uh, me and my friends in that. Okay. So let's do some star Wars DNA stuff here. Sure. Um, do you guys notice anything in this episode besides what we've already mentioned? That seems to, that, that is of note for star Wars aficionados in the hand to hand fights, which there are a lot of them. Nobody gets, nobody really gets hurt. Mm-hmm. You don't see any, you don't see any real death. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, in in Star Wars, you see a, a, the Jawas get killed and stuff. But when it comes to like humans, you you never you never see it happening. And then whenever they finally do show something like that happen, and this may have been in the next episode and not not this one, but they show it like in a silhouette. Yeah, that's it's right. Like, yeah. Flash chokes the life out of a shark man, I believe, in episode four. And it's in silhouette. Um, I like that a lot. That's a great shot. The, yeah, they're all very stuntman friendly, uh, fights, like a lot of, uh, like very merciful, low energy throws where a stuntman could easily like brace himself 
for the impact. It's kind of like even nowadays, like with the stormtroopers, have you noticed how in the last two star Wars movies, stormtroopers tend to die a lot by being flung in the air as if they've jumped on a trampoline. Yeah. Right. Um, it's like a way of showing stormtroopers getting killed. That looks impactful, but is really kind of harmless. I don't know whether I like it or not, to be honest. I feel like it's kind of getting overused. There's a lot of like dirt getting blasted up from the, it's like, we're doing practical effects now. Let's blow up some ground. And, uh, <laughs> it looks good, but it's kind of like, there's kind of, we're done with that. Like you, you do got to move on to something else. Like you can't just keep blasting up, you know, dirt and having stormtroopers fall over. It is cool that stuntmen are actually in those costumes and like hurtling through the air, but still one, one, this has nothing to do with anything, but, um, I one thing I heard a lot of complaints about in Rogue One is how like when Donnie Yen's character hits the stormtroopers with a stick and they all fall down and it's everybody's like what's the point of the armor if like you could just get hit with a stick and you and you pass out I first of all I don't I don't think people like have you ever been hit with a stick like that moving that fast you know it's like it's not what you think it is I haven't but I'm just you know just I have an idea. But the other thing I noticed the, the second time I watched it is Donnie Yen aims his stick for the, the gaps in their armor mm-hmm. every chance he gets. So when he hits a stormtrooper, not just in the head, but when he hits them, especially like he's doing it in the foot beneath their shin plate in their, in their boot or in their armpit in one case where there's no armor. It's just the weird, like, you know, black plastic wetsuit or whatever it is. And uh, or underneath their their helmet and their underneath on their chin, and um, it, as I recall uh, from from my uh, much younger days, a lot of um, uh, traditional martial arts will teach you the same stuff, even though it's useless now because in the old days people of course wear armor and all the martial arts were designed around like getting underneath that armor. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool that a a guardian of the wills would uh, do that. I thought that was a great thing Donnie and added to it that he thought ahead. Anyway, that's one well, example it, of how, yeah, go ahead. It was pretty violent. You know, there was a lot of um, like helmet lenses breaking during that fight sequence. You watch it. Um, I'm in the 501st and I've got, I've got like the original. Really? The, the new style. Yeah. You'll see, you'll see bits of, um, do you have the, uh, uh, do you, do you have the uh, the weird floppy uh, gun holder that never gets used or not? It, well, actually, I do put my my uh, blaster in there. It's functional. Oh, sometimes you're it is. Well, and that's why. Have you ever noticed that all the stormtroopers um, hold their hold their weapons wrong handed, left handed? If you watch yeah. them in A New Hope, it, they look really awkward because so many guys haven't mastered the ability to hold that gun in a way that looks natural and it's almost like they're holding it like they they stick it out too far from their body to where they're they're not pointing it at a 45 degree angle from their body they're literally pointing it directly to their right they don't know what to do with their hands well the reason for that is is the way they built the thing with the the it's got a big clip that sticks off Mm -hmm. the side of it you can't holster it on your right side Hmm. you have to holster it on your left because that clip sticks out that's and, interesting. I didn't know that. And, and so it wasn't until Return of the Jedi that the holsters showed up on the right side of the stormtrooper instead of the left. But yeah, w- when you watch Donnie Donnie Yen fight these guys, you see, you know, um, lens glass flying. 
and uh i love i think like one of my secret favorite moments of the of rogue one is actually not like the that that fight is a little bit i think a little bit maybe too much kung fu in a way like it it doesn't take me out of it but it but what i love best is when you see donnie yen at the in the end where he's sneaking through the jungle taking out stormtroopers silently so that the other guys can get along their way what he's doing is exactly like what alec guinness does ben kenobi does on the death star he's Mm -hmm. like sneaking around and doing things stealthily which is like something you never see the jedi ever do again um, and it, which is really sad because that's one way that shows like how you can fight without fighting and that kind of thing. And, uh, I, I always like that about what Alec Guinness does in the original star Wars, how he like creates that weird, like weird rumbling sound so that the stormtroopers look away. And then he, he has a chance to like move across the hallway and it's like, uh, what was that? That was nothing. It was, just, it was like, it's such a cool thing. Like it gives you an idea of like how the Jedi would be. Like that's that's the only thing that makes sense. Like, why would they even be going after Ben Kenobi to fight the Death Star anyway? Because he's not a pilot. So they would either want him to sneak in and do something from the inside, or they would want his military expertise, which there's no reason to believe he has any. Um, <laughs> you, you know, from the early point. from the earlier Star Wars drafts, um, that's why it's there. Like he's they're going to go get him because in the early Star Wars drafts, the Jedi were completely different. They were basically like like military experts they were like samurai generals like from the kurosawa films where and they also had like that um i think they would later call in the eu battle meditation Mm -hmm. where you would like certain jedi could like orchestrate like a massive offensive uh effort by like linking their mind with the minds of all the troops and stuff like that that is uh, something that the Jedi and the Sith Knights do in the early Star Wars drafts. And so that's probably what the idea was when they are like, why Leia stops to get Obi-Wan Kenobi is because they were expecting him to do that. And it's kind of changed now because they don't show the Jedi doing stuff like that. They, they mostly are just like space cops. And, it, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really hurt the movie any, but it's kind of weird. You're like, Wait, you have this these Death Star plans. You're rushing them back to Alderaan, but you're going to stop to pick up like an old space cop who's like retired on a desert planet. Like, why? Like, what, what's he going to do? If anything, they should have gotten him to steal the Death Star plans in the first place. He could have done that without a big show, right? He could have just snuck in and it's like bathrobe and gotten <laughs> stuff out. With he would have been awesome at that. Um, yeah, th- but that's the kind of thing when you see Obi-Wan Kenobi do that, like you get the impression that they did that because Alec Guinness is not going to do. I mean, we've seen him do the sword fighting like he knew how to stage fight better than probably David Prowse did because he was a Shakespearean actor and they they had to do that right. But, you know, it's it doesn't look amazing. You know, it, it looks like it, it really does look like a Shakespeare kind of like a Royal Shakespeare Company kind of stage fight where there's talking while they're fighting. And it's exposition. And so you get like, well, we could have Alec Guinness do a bunch of cool. Now we can't. Well, let's have him do this instead. And they do something you'd never see in a Flash Gordon episode, which is like sneak around and be clever. You know, like Flash Gordon would just show up and just punch the crap out of everybody. That's what he does. You know, he's a Yale graduate, but what he does is he punches people. Yeah, like, he's a bulldozer. That's his yeah. that's what he that's his thing. It's a huge blonde, like meat like statue that just barrels through every problem. But you don't resent him for it because he's not jockish. He's never like acting like a like a like a heel. You know, he's always like he's 
and he's not he's never like particularly rude or condescending to the women either it's it's like he's really like seems like a nice guy who just happens to look like the guy who gave people like us wedgies in high school <laughs> but um <laughs> yeah that's about it i think that's i think we can wrap episode two up then uh, what do you guys think uh, i think so. the only other thing i would the only other thing i'd have to add here is you really get to see a, a good combination of the miniatures and live action in the sequence at the end mm-hmm. where the big the big scary dragon you know they don't just stick to the one it's you know the 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 guy in the suit with the miniature and then it cuts away and it's flash and the actor inside this you know the, like a claw by claw. itself yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and it and it was yeah, it was well edited. You know, they really did a good job where it didn't it didn't just stay on one and then the other and that was it. It was a back and forth and Yeah, we'll get into this uh with episode three because they show the remainder of the fight. But you can if you crop the screens down, these are like more or less in four four three aspect ratio, because that's the way movies were done back then. Um but if you crop it down to like a uh what's Star Wars then? Like it's like two point five by one yeah if you if you crop it down to that and then compare it you can do almost scene by scene the rancor thing like the way that they it was no question that the Rocco fight in in uh flash gordon is the inspiration and probably helped them storyboard the rancor fight uh almost exactly like you've got Luke, they built like a giant rancor hand for Luke to struggle in, just like they built a giant claw for Flash to struggle in. And it's amazing that those techniques largely worked pretty well, even in in 1983. Um, they did stop motion, which is way better um, than than the giant Power Rangers type suit that they had the Flash Gordon monster in. But but the way that they they cut back and forth and just like the creative editing, I think you're right. Like. The only thing that breaks it for me is when you see the Gakko's head close up, and it's just like these giant, like cone-shaped teeth that are clearly made out of paper. Yeah, that was, <laughs> like, that was the part that took me out of it. I can accept that, that the was kinda, dude in a suit, but when the close-ups were were tough. Yeah, but I mean, you know, that's we can accept that. I mm-hmm. think for for what this was is super super cheap. But I mean the the power of editing, you can see it right there. It's like, as long as you don't linger too long on the monster, you don't think about it that much. And that uh, will bring me to my final rogue one commentary of the, of the episode, um, which is like my only problem with the grand Moff Tarkin, like cartoon recreation thing is that they lingered on his face as if he were a real actor to, and they shouldn't have done that. You, you can show his face, but if you stay on it for longer than a second or two without moving the camera somewhere else, you are basically begging the audience to find the flaws that are cannot be erased. Like, it is an amazing thing that they did, and I love that they put him in there. And it, in the theater I was in, the audience gasped when they saw it. Like, I, I mean, there was like an, oh, my God, that just looked from everybody there. Um, it was amazing, but then they kept, they didn't move the camera. They kept it on his face, which they would never do in one of these old serials because they'd know better. You don't, don't draw the audience's attention to the, the artifice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the, in the original trilogy, they did the same thing with matte paintings, right? They never showed a matte painting shot for more than a second or two, because then you'd figure it out. Oh, that's not quite, that's just a flat picture, but you, you won't figure it out as long as it's just a second or two. And you keep moving and you never think about it again. 
you know it looks great so i love that i love what they did with this uh with this fight i wish it ended better but we'll get into that for episode three thanks everybody we'll uh we'll be back next week yeah thank you yeah thanks man this is awesome until next time star wars is back Back. Back. back